about democratic principles or human rights, then we have to be consistent across the board. And in reality, we are not consistent across the board. Right. There's really no question to our inconsistency. And that plays to the fact that it, it has little to do with those things, but they're very nice sound bites. It's good to say, you know, we're against this government because they are terrorists. And, but we have no problem with this other government, even though they have very similarly problematic um, kinds of, you know, things that happen. Right. Uh, for on, instance, you know... If you uh, on about, that note, uh, though, uh, oh, Dr. Sorry. Azulrad, we are going to have to leave it there, but please come back so we could continue uh, this conversation. We're just out of time, sadly. <laughs> so we, sure, we no, have well, to thank go. Thank you for having me. Well, thank you so much. It's It's been t- a terrific discussion. And I'd like to thank all of uh, today's guests on today's show produced by me. That's Margaret Prescott. I'd like to thank the Sojourner Truth team, Mr. T, Teddy Robinson, our audio engineer, assistant producer, Romero Funes. If you'd like a copy of today's show, please contact the Pacifica Radio Archives at 1-800-735-0230. You're listening to KBOO Portland 90.7 FM. Next up, it's Rising Up with Sonali. The Corvallis Daytime Drop-In Center wouldn't exist without the local folks who volunteer their time to help the homeless. In episode four of the third season of Local Folks Podcast, we meet Tiana, Pete, and John to learn what they do, why they volunteer, and what they have learned about the homeless and themselves as a result. You can find Local Folks at kboo.fm. Go to audio, podcasts, and click on Local Folks. KBOO Community Radio is a proud co-sponsor of Portland's Folk Festival on Friday, January 10th and Saturday, January 11th, 6 to midnight at the Crystal Ballroom in Portland. Portland's Folk Festival is an all-ages celebration of folk and Americana music in Portland. Friday performers include Anna Tibble, Cedar Teeth, Glitter Fox, and more. Saturday performers include Horse Feathers, The Get Ahead, and more. Again, that's Portland's Folk Festival, Friday, January 10th, and Saturday, January 11th, from 6 to midnight at the Crystal Ballroom, 1332 West Burnside Street in Portland. More information can be found at kboo.fm on the right side of the homepage under Community Events. When we From KPFK Pacifica Radio in Los Angeles, this is Rising Up with Sonali, and I'm your host, Sonali Kolhatkar. On our show today, we'll examine the Afghanistan Papers, an in-depth investigation by the Washington Post based on newly obtained secret documents about the U.S.'s longest war. Then we'll discuss a new and disturbing book about domestic violence called No Visible Bruises. That's coming up in just a moment.
from KPFK Pacifica Radio. This is Rising Up with Sonali, and I'm your host, Sonali Kolhatkar. You can watch this program on Free Speech TV and listen to it on Pacifica radio stations and affiliates nationwide. For three years, the Washington Post fought a legal battle to obtain documents of hundreds of interviews with experts and government officials about the U.S.'s longest war, still being fought in Afghanistan. The interviews were conducted by a little-known watchdog group called the Special Inspector General for Afghanistan Reconstruction. Analyzing the documents in great detail, journalist Craig Whitlock and his colleagues published a multi-part story that they're calling the Afghanistan Papers. The expose confirms what critics had been asserting for nearly two decades that there is no clearly defined goal or end point to the war to help determine when to stop fighting, and that our efforts have been futile at best and deeply destructive at worst. It also shows that officials have been lying about the war for years and that our billions of dollars spent there have little to show for it. Before we turn to our guest expert, I want to play a short clip of a video produced by the Washington Post in its battle to obtain the documents. These documents, these first-hand interviews from people who were involved, and yet this material had been suppressed for so long, that this was an original way to tell the story of all the failures in Afghanistan. We're, we're basically fighting the wrong way. We just left the Afghans with the off because we didn't know how the story was going to end. We are not really here to win. In the fall of 2016, General Michael Flynn, who at that time was a retired U.S. general and intelligence director at the Pentagon, was working with Donald Trump on his campaign, and he was in the headlines quite a bit. America first. America first. And we'd heard there had been an interview done, a long interview done with Michael Flynn about the war in Afghanistan, and that this interview had been conducted by an obscure government agency called the Special Inspector General for Afghanistan Reconstruction. Since Flynn was in the news lot, we wanted to take a look at that interview, and so then we had to file a Freedom Information Act request, and this dragged on for weeks, and Trump won the election, and Trump was president. Now Flynn was his national security advisor in the White House. Good afternoon, everyone. And ultimately, they denied us the interview. They said it wasn't a public record, so uh, the Post had to file a lawsuit in federal court to obtain it. Ambassadors, you know, local down at the uh, you know down at the local level, everybody did a great job. We're all doing a great job. Really? So if we're doing such a great job, why why does it feel like we've, we're losing? Uh, Michael Flynn was. Like you know, just unsparing in his criticism of how the war was going. Then we found out that Flynn was only one of hundreds of people who had been in interviewed by this Inspector General for Afghanistan over the previous few years. And that's an excerpt of a video that the Washington Post created around the story that it has published in multiple parts called the Afghanistan Papers. Joining me to examine them is Matthew Ho, member of the advisory boards of Exposed Facts, Veterans for Peace and World Beyond War. In 2009, he resigned his position with the State Department in Afghanistan in protest of the escalation of the war there by the Obama administration. Welcome to the program, Matthew. Hi, Sonali. Thank you for having me on. I imagine that, like me, you poured through these Afghanistan papers and thought, I remember when I warned against that. Oh, yes, that was predictable. Um, and we knew that Rumsfeld was lying, etc. Did this set of um, documents overall, of course, there are some revelations in the details, but overall, revealed to you that you and other critics of the war have been right for nearly two decades, for the entire, almost entire time it's been fought? You know, I don't think um, any of us needed reassuring, uh, particularly in light of the fact, not just in Afghanistan, but what we've seen happen in Iraq, Libya, Syria, and Yemen, Somalia, all throughout, say, sub-Saharan Africa, uh, that these wars are not just immoral and illegal, but they're counterproductive. And so I think that context has always reassured, I think, folks like myself and then you who, you know, you've been speaking about this war much longer than I have. And I actually sent an email today to Barbara Lee's office, you know, a representative from California, who was the only person who opposed the authorization for use of military force uh, in 2001 um, in the United States Congress after the 9-11 attacks. And I sent her office a, an email because, you know, I just wanted to say, you know, I'm thinking of you guys and I, 
you know, I understand the sadness that comes with this. I, I have not met any of us, Sonali, who have been speaking against the war, um, who are expressing joy or some kind of affirmation or, hey, you know, look, we were right. I think there's just a general sadness among all of us because we know the human cost in this. We know the suffering, not just for uh, the uh, the Americans and their families and their, their their neighbors who were involved in these wars, but for the Afghan people who have just been through 40 some odd years of unrelenting suffering that has no end in sight, as well as too, again, you know, put this in the larger context, all the people, the tens of millions of people who have suffered from American wars, uh, not just for these last two decades, but, you know, going back, uh, uh, you know, really, you could t you can make a straight line back from these wars all the way back through, of course, uh, uh, before the founding of the Republic, the, 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 the wars against Native Americans, the institution of slavery, the doctrine of discovery, et cetera, all that ties in together. And so I think what, what for folks like myself, there's sadness, not uh, any type of, uh, you know, triumph. One of the uh, critical graphics in the Washington Post's coverage was the toll of the war, which I think has to be central to any discussion around this longest war. Tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of human beings have died. So the graphic which we've shown for our TV audience shows that since 2001, an estimated 157,000 people have been killed in the war in Afghanistan. That includes 43,000 Afghan civilians, 64,000 and some Afghan security forces, 42,000 Taliban fighters and other insurgents. And that includes 3,814 U.S. contractors, 2,300 U.S. military personnel, 1,145 NATO and coalition troops, 67 journalists and media workers, 424 humanitarian aid workers. So here's this war that has been claiming so many lives. And although you and I and other critics of the war knew that officials were lying about the war, this set of documents proves it, right? So they told yeah. when they thought that their words were not going to become public, they told this watchdog group, the Special Inspector General for Afghanistan Reconstruction, SIGAR, SIGAR, they told in very candid terms that we didn't know what we were doing in Afghanistan. And then publicly, they claimed progress. I mean, that's shocking. Yeah, yeah you know, th these men, first of all, these men and women should not be considered whistleblowers in any sense of the fashion that you would ascribe to, say, a Chelsea Manning or an Edward Snowden or a Thomas Drake. Uh, these are men and women who, as you said, Sonali, thought that their words, that their, 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 their truthful words we're not ever going to see uh, the public eye. Um, and if you've noticed, if people have looked through the report and you've seen where the Post actually spoke to some of these men and women who, uh, who are uh, documented in these reports, almost all of them, with the exception of one that I found, Barney Rubin, who has consistently spoken out against the war uh, you know, for the last you know, eight or nine years at least, um, all of them try and walk back or try and squirm out of it or say, I don't recall saying that or, you know, or try and justify their comments. So what I think that shows to people is that this type of, of lying, this type of malfeasance is institutionalized. And we have seen um, there's a book out by a West Point professor uh, currently right now. There is uh, there have been reports put out by the various armed services, including a major one in either 2010 or 2011 by the Army War College about the institutionalization of lying in the military as a way to one, show loyalty, and then of course two, to advance advancement and secure uh, you know, a, a profitable career for yourself. Um, so I, I think that demonstrates uh, the, 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 the you know, systematic and consistent lying demonstrates that you know, th this, this way of war the, 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 the way of violence has to be propped up by lying because it can only end in ruin. There, there's no, I mean, and we know this going back to, uh, you know, the Greeks wrote about this. This is in the pages of the Bible. I mean, this is certainly not new human wisdom, but it certainly is uh, uh, wisdom that we have as a nation and as a people uh, in our institutions, at least, have forgotten. Now, and Matthew, I say, well, mm -hmm, go ahead. Oh, I was going to say, I want to say one thing about the human cost. 
the numbers that you see in the Washington Post that you just recited, uh, Sonali, as unbelievable as they are, those should be only be looked at as the bare minimum. If you look in, at what, say, like a, a journalist like Jonathan Steele writes about um, in his book uh, from a number of years ago, or his reporting from early in the war there in the early 2000s, you see that the number of, and, and from what I saw too being there, the number of Afghan civilian dead is a bare minimum. And the United Nations in its reporting says that. Uh, I would say, based upon my experience in both Iraq and Afghanistan, that whenever uh, a U.S. helicopter or U.S. Marines or soldiers kill civilians, we only hear about that one out of five times or one out of six times, possibly. So much of the killing in these wars go unreported, as well as the fact that the war takes place in a rural Muslim population who is distrustful of the government, distrustful of the foreign occupation, buries their dead quickly in, 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 in uh, observance of religious and cultural rights. Um, and then, too, it doesn't take into account, uh, so we don't know what the actual numbers are. It, then it doesn't take into account things such as, you know, the Afghan refugees are the second largest refugee group in the world amongst the la world's largest refugee crisis since the Second World War. So how many of these people have died? while trying to get to safety into sanctuary. How many of them are lying dead in the mountain pass or at the bottom of the Mediterranean Sea right now? And then finally, for the American uh, uh, casualties, the rates of suicide are not in there. Uh, you know, so what we know from the figures of suicide is that more Iraq and Afghan veterans have killed themselves since coming home them were killed in Iraq or Afghanistan. If you're a tw if you're a Iraq and Afghan veteran in your 20s, you have a rate of suicide six times higher than that of your civilian peers who are your same age and same sex. So we, when we look at those numbers, we have to understand them as a bare minimum that we're just, you know, that's the tip of the proverbial iceberg right. in the, terms of the, the human cost in these women's the, uh, war. conservative uh, estimate and, and very likely a huge underestimate. Um, in examining the Afghanistan papers, which I assume was named to reflect the Pentagon papers about the Vietnam War that Daniel Ellsberg had um, revealed as a whistleblower. In, in looking at these, uh, a clear um, distinction is drawn between the Bush administration strategy in the Afghanistan war and the Obama administration strategy. You resigned from the State Department over Obama's escalation of the war. And I'm wondering if you can share, just from looking at these documents and seeing the internal assessments, how uh, you view what Obama did. He basically threw troops and a lot of money and then created this sort of artificial timeline so that the Taliban knew just to wait it out um, at, at, this, at this war. And it was clearly a wrong strategy just from a pro-war perspective, right? Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. You know, if I was still in the, in the military and I was still trying to, like, win victories for the empire, you know, I would not have, you know, you, the, 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 the strategy itself goes, went against everything that we know about the war, about the populace, about the people, and about the way of American war and what we're doing. I used to get asked a lot, what are the similarities between Iraq and Afghanistan? And this is when President Obama's surge was happening in Afghanistan. And at first I would fall into that trap and be like, well, you know, you know, in trying to, to parse the differences. And then I realized, you know what, it doesn't matter mm -hmm. because the United States military is waging war against a people in both places, and the outcome is going to be the same. It's going to be suffering, and it's going to be absolute uh, a counterproductive uh, a method of recruiting for those people that we are calling our enemies, because what you're doing is, is by killing their friends and family, killing their neighbors, you're just making their cause more worthwhile and more of a purpose-driven cause. Um, what I saw there, because uh, I had done two deployments to uh, Iraq and also have worked at the Pentagon and the State Department on war policy uh, during these wars before I got to Afghanistan in 2009 with the State Department, was that the Obama administration was no different than the Bush administration. They claimed they were. Um, they, they claimed that, you know, they were just inherently better because they were Democrats versus Republicans. But the reality was, was that the Afghanistan war was a way for the Democrats to prove that they were a better, uh, 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 they had a better commander in chief, 
that they were better at winning wars, that they were just as tough as the Republicans. Um, and that really comes down to why did this war, uh, why was it just not extended by President Obama, but why was it escalated? When he comes into office, we have about 30,000 U.S. forces in Afghanistan. By the end of his first year, there's 100,000 U.S. forces there. He's added 100,000 more contractors and 40,000 more NATO troops. I mean, so this wasn't a minor surge of 30,000 as is often misrepresented. This was a massive increase of 250,000 personnel to try and win this war, to prove victory uh, for the United States president. And it was just one, a colossal failure, but two, to go back to your point, which I, I don't think we could ever uh, 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 spend too much time talking about, is just more and more suffering for the Afghan people. Yeah. Now, the other huge aspect of this was the amount of money that was spent on the war uh, and in the war as part of the war. There's several aspects that you alluded to it earlier. The Washington Post has a whole section on what that money did. Um, it was about a trillion dollars of U.S. taxpayers' money. That's my money, your money, every American taxpayer's money was poured into Afghanistan far more money than the entire Marshall Plan, money that could have actually done some good in Afghanistan if it was put into the right places or used in the right way. But instead, so much of it went into the to fueling corruption. Um, one of the things that just shocked me and really angered me, just a tiny little fact that was one of the new things that came out of this uh, Afghanistan papers, Abdul Rashid Dostum, one of the most notorious Afghan warlords, you know, documented mass killer, was receiving $100,000 of U.S. taxpayer money per month to behave himself. And of course, he became one of the two vice presidents in the nation as well. Just shocking. That's $100,000 of money that came from my pocket and your pocket and the pocket of every American taxpayer going into mass killers by way of the U.S. government. Oh, absolutely. I mean, you, can't, you, you can't underestimate that term of mass killers. These men that we put and kept in power are as equally as bad as a Taliban. That is one thing that was suppressed, one thing that was uh, just not allowed really to be spoken about um, in, in, in U.S. discourse. Uh, about the war for the last uh, you know, 18 years is that the people that we put in power w were the people who killed tens and tens of thousands of their fellow Afghan citizens by shelling Kabul. These are the people who committed mass human rights atrocities. These are the people, actually. A lot of people believe that the Taliban brought the burqa to Kabul. No, the burqa was brought to Kabul by the very men that we put back into power and either if they've passed away now, their progeny are still in power. I mean, this is, it, it, is, it is just um, a cruel thing to say to the Afghans that we made life better for you. Yes, in some areas it has been made better, there has been relative peace, but in other areas there's been massive war. And really, most of the people who say that things are better in Afghanistan, if they are Afghans, very often are on the dole of the U.S. government somehow or on the dole of the Afghan government. Um, I would refer people to the Cost of War Project at Brown University. Um, they have done really great work on how much this war is actually going to cost at, you know, at the end of our lives because you know, I, I, I'm a 100% disabled veteran. I, I get all my health care for, uh, you know, through the, the Veterans Administration, and I have to get a lot of health care to take care of my problems stemming from these wars, both physical and mental. And so you have to pay for me until the end of my life. It doesn't end until then. And, and then there's all other costs that, that roll into it. But what they say at Brown University and other studies at Harvard and other places have confirmed this is that the war will cost at least six trillion dollars uh, by the time it's all said and done. Six trillion dollars. Of that, what the most incredible number uh, is within it is that at least one trillion of that will just be simply in debt and interest payments. Wow. So. It's a one this war will, is eventually going to be just a one trillion dollar profit for the banks. 
And uh, the Trump administration has restarted peace talks with the Taliban, which if the U.S. leaves with the Taliban in power, we will have, um, as I put it in my <laughs> latest column about this story, we will have gone from point A to point B and back to point A by way of unimaginable death, destruction, and trillions of dollars wasted. Now, uh, just going back to this issue of the way in which the money fueled corruption in Afghanistan, I just wanted a quote from the um, Afghanistan papers, as the Washington Post wrote it, just because it's eloquently written, U.S. engaged in a, a huge nation-building effort in Afghanistan, drenching the destitute country with more money than it could absorb. There was so much excess that opportunities for bribery, fraud, and corruption became limitless. One U.S. advisor said that at the airbase where he worked, many Afghans reeked of jet fuel because they were smuggling out so much of it to sell on the black market. Meanwhile, we're told there's not enough money for health care, for free college education. And of course, this week, Democrats joined Republicans, many of them, to pass the renewal of the NDAA, the National Defense Authorization Act, giving the uh, military a $22 billion bump from the year before, taking out the bills that uh, would have stopped the war in Yemen and Iran. Um, and that all should be very much, th these, this Washington Post story should have been part of that discussion on the NDA renewal, right? But it wasn't. I don't think it was, even came up unless it was by one of the opposition. Oh, there's so much that, 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 that plays into all of this that, that ties into it. Um, that, the, the shooting that happened last week in Pensacola, yeah. uh, where that 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 aviation uh, uh, student from Saudi Arabia, you know, killed three people, he said, you know, that he is doing this not because he hates our freedom, but because, uh, you know, of our of the United States bombing and killing of people, and it's what they all say. All these people who conduct these attacks against Americans, uh, the, the guy in Orlando, the, the, the guy who tried to blow up Times Square, uh, those two uh, young men in Boston, none of them say convert or die. They all say, stop bombing my people, stop killing Muslim people. That's what they keep saying. Mm -hmm. And that just gets, that, that doesn't even get recognized. It's, it, it's, it's, it's because they called us a nation of evil, like they're, they have some type of uh, uh, imbalance in their understanding of, of, of good and bad, what's morally right and what's morally wrong. Um, but also too, as you said with the NDAA, yeah, for you know members of Congress to express outrage and then turn around and immediately give this organization that has so systemically lied, not just about this, but about Iraq and about Libya, you know, and, and, and everything else. Um, to go and turn around and give them 735 or 38 billion dollars or whatever the final number was is just I mean I, I think everyone thinks of that that famous scene in Casablanca you know where the police captain comes in and he says I'm shocked gambling is going on here and then the the, the waiter comes up and says here are your winnings sir you know I mean it, it's that type of literally the, the the one hand does not know what the other hand is mm. doing in terms of members of Congress because how in your right mind could you say you're one first of all say that you didn't know that things were going badly in Afghanistan and this is the first you learned that the US government and its military might be lying about something and two then turn around and give them 738 billion dollars when as you say Sonali there is I mean the, the hey as people say all the time as a tagline you know Flint Michigan still does not have clean water well, finally, Matthew, um, although I was very impressed by the work that the Washington Post reporters did in putting this information out there and the legal battle they waged to obtain the uh, secret interviews conducted by the Inspector General for Reconstruction in Afghanistan, although all of that was very impressive, the U.S. media by and large, the corporate media in particular, really is in part to blame for these wars continuing. Don't you agree? They're, because critics of the war ha were not surprised by what was revealed, because if you scratch the surface of official rhetoric, the evidence is there, If you're especially if you're paying attention to what's actually happening on the ground. Do you um, feel that the media could have done so much more over these past 18 years? Yeah, you know, absolutely. It's yeah, I think it's one of those things that makes me the angriest is that the post is now trying to wear almost like a cloak of 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 being the hero. I imagine this is going to be their first entry in, you know, submit submission for next year's Pulitzer Prize awards, sure. right? You know, um I particularly 
you know, you get aggrieved at this because you see the lack of adversarial journalism that has gone on for so long um, in the Post, in the New York Times. Um, you know, the USA Today has actually not been too bad, I've found, over the last decade or so. Mm. Um, but, uh, you know, but, but for the most part, and then certainly the news channels, CNN, MSNBC, Fox News, uh, very little one uh, a, a chance for anyone who doesn't speak uh, in lockstep with the Pentagon to get on these channels. Um, and two, so very often, particularly, say, with the Post and the Times, um, and as well, too, the Associated Press and Reuters, you know, um, to, to go and just give the benefit of the doubt to the military and to print uh, unnamed sources, anonymous sources, over and over and over again um, without any type of, uh, without any type of, of, of attempt to fact check or to, again, play the role of adversarial journalist. Um, and I know you know this, if you said something to, you know, and it's not just uh, the major newspapers, it's also major magazines like The Atlantic or Time Magazine or, or whoever, um, you get, you, you know, someone like yourself, if they even deign to read what you sent, they're going to fact check you. You know, your, your, your eyes and fingertips are going to bleed by the time you're done, you know, qualifying everything you said. But you see all the time they, they publish things from men like General Petraeus or General McChrystal or, or you know, uh, without any source, without any attempt to speak to anyone who might think differently. And, of course, without any ever, ever clarifying or bringing up, hey, he's been wrong the last 50 or 100 times he's spoken. So, yeah, I think that is probably the, the, the one thing where I'm really upset about and really emotional about with this because the rest of it is, as you know, we said earlier, you know, there's no joy in, in saying, you know, I told you so. Yeah. Matthew, I want to thank you so much for joining us today for all the work you've done over the years. Thanks so much. Thank you, Sonali. My guest has been Matthew Ho. He's a member of the advisory boards of Exposed Facts, Veterans for Peace and World Beyond War. In 2009, he resigned his position with the U.S. State Department in Afghanistan in protest of the escalation of the war there by the Obama administration. We've been discussing the Washington Post's Afghanistan papers. I'm Sonali Kohatkar. We're online at risingupwithsonali.com, where you can sign up for our daily newsletter, subscribe to our video channel on Vimeo, and find our audio podcast on iTunes and Spotify. KPFK Pacifica Radio. This is Rising Up with Sonali and I'm your host Sonali Kolhatkar. You can watch this program on Free Speech TV and listen to it on Pacifica radio stations and affiliates nationwide. Violence against women is an epidemic that we are acknowledging and demanding justice for in larger than ever numbers in the era of hashtag MeToo. But violence that occurs in the home, between domestic partners, the kind that we call domestic violence or intimate violence, is still unfortunately deeply invisibilized. A new and timely book called No Visible Bruises explores in visceral detail the toll of such violence on its victims. Its author is Rachel Louise Snyder, Associate Professor at American University. She's the award-winning author of the, her earlier book, uh, Fugitive Denim, A Moving Story of People and Pants in the Borderless World of Global Trade. Her work has appeared in the New Yorker, New York Times Magazine, the Washington Post, New Republic, and more. She joins me to discuss this new book, No Visible Bruises, What We Don't Know about domestic violence can kill us. Welcome to the program, Rachel. 
Thank you for having me. So you won your award for this book, the uh, J. Anthony Lucas Award, and um, certainly well-deserved in looking through your book. It seems like this is um, very much a book for our times. How do we um, define domestic violence? And of course, that's a term that doesn't really do justice to the depth of that violence. But we have so many different kinds of violence against women, right? Sexual assault and rape and um, the kinds of violence that can occur between us strangers. Um, but how do you define domestic violence? Well, I mean, the problem isn't so much the definition as as what we call it. Um, mm -hmm. You know, domestic violence is, of course, violence against someone that you know, generally that you claim to love. Um, it could be a heteronormative couple, man against woman or woman against man, of course, you know, same-sex couples, LGBTQ, um, parents against children, uh, uh, children against elder care, parent, you know, elders. So there's a lot of different variations that are included in that term domestic violence. But the problem for me is that it's so abstract, it doesn't capture really what it's like to live inside one of those relationships, what it's like to live in a house where that kind of violence is prevalent. What led you to exploring this um, phenomenon? Uh, you've done work around the world on, on different issues, but why this kind of violence? You know, I guess there's, there's really two reasons. The first is that all the other stories I ever did um, that had to do with women and women's disempowerment around the world always had domestic violence uh, embedded in them somewhere. So whether it was child brides or um, women jailed for love crimes or women forcibly sterilized by governments or whatever the issue was, domestic violence always was kind of adjacent to whatever was going on. And the other thing was that I, I realized we we really have not had a public conversation about this. We're starting to have conversations about sexual sexual assault in the Me Too era, but we're not having those conversations about domestic violence in the same way that we do with other social issues, you know, poverty or homelessness or 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 mental health issues. We don't have any of those anything like that with domestic violence. And I um I felt like it was time. You begin your book uh, telling us a story of a woman named Michelle Monson Mosier, um, whose father you uh, went to meet and interview. Tell us her story. Michelle was in some ways very typical. She uh, was raised um, in a middle-class home. Her parents were divorced. She had two sisters, um, two very involved, loving parents. And uh, she met a, a guy named Rocky when she was 14 years old. He was 24, and she was pregnant shortly after, uh, had two kids by the time she graduated from high school. And uh, eventually, when she was 23 years old, he killed her, killed her two children, and then killed himself. That is uh, the Reader's Digest version of her story. But of course, as is always true of domestic violence, it's much more complicated and nuanced than it seems. And this whole idea of um, domestic violence being a crime is unfortunately a relatively new-ish phenomenon if you look at the history of civilization. And in some countries, maybe it's not even that, right? Not even that, yeah. I mean, I, it's it's stunning to me to think that um, you know, we in the United States, we think of ourselves as very progressive, as very modern. Um, you know, we grew up thinking, being told all the time, this is the best country in the world. And yet we didn't have a federal law here in the States against spousal abuse until 1984. Wow. Um, you know, you look at the whole history of humanity, and that is just a shocking, a shocking uh, fact. But there are plenty of countries today that are um, uh, that don't de decriminalize that have decriminalized or don't have uh, criminal charges at all against spousal abuse. Um, Russia, especially is, of husbands against wives, especially husbands against wives, right? Which is you know the majority of domestic violence. Although I do think it's underreported in um, uh, 
for example, Native American or indigenous indigenous communities and immigrant communities in LGBTQ communities. I think it's underreported and certainly under-resourced. But so there are many countries, um, Russia, Turkey, Iran, where there there are no real laws against violence against women. And then there are other countries like uh, Ireland and, and France where their laws are quite progressive, certainly much more progressive than anything we have here in the States. Here, every five years, when the reauthorization for the Violence Against Women Act comes about, um, we tend to have these political battles that play out on something that should not be an issue to be battled over, right? I mean, doesn't that even also reflect our reticence to treat this as a serious crime it is? Well, in fact, the Violence Against Women Act, or VAWA, as it's typically referred to, has been apolitical since its inception up until about 2013. In 2013, it became politicized and suddenly became, became for the first time ever, um, Republicans didn't want to get behind it because they had written, the Democrats had written um, further protect, protections for immigrant communities, for LGBTQ communities, and the Republicans didn't want to, they were uncomfortable with that 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 extra resourcing. So it became politicized then. It did eventually pass in 2013, but now we see the 2018 Violence Against Women Act still has not passed. It was it passed in the House, has not passed in the Senate, and for the first time ever, doesn't have a single Republican co-sponsor. For the first time ever, um, it's just unconscionable to, to, unconscionable to me, and it, it speaks, of course, to this larger problem that you're alluding to, which is how we see the safety of women and whether or not we we prioritize um, the safety of of women in those intimate partner relationships, or whether we're prioritizing other things. I want to go back to the story of uh, Michelle Monson Moser. In your book, No Visible Bruises, you spend a lot of time telling the story of the family of of you know of Michelle herself, of her partner Rocky, of their children. Um, and I'm wondering why you spend so much time giving us those intimate details um, and and going through their family dynamic. You know, as a writer, my real challenge was how to get something that people have a very casual acquaintance with to really speak to them. And that that really was the driving question behind how I wrote the book. I wanted I wanted readers to to experience the loss of Michelle and her children and Rocky too. And the only way to do that is to make those people come alive as much as possible. And so, you know, I have a background in, in fiction writing. And so I really, I approached the, the problem of how easy it is to turn away for people in this country. I really approached that as a fiction writer and was like, okay, how can I, how can I make us care? we know how this story ends. We know from page one of the book that Michelle is going to be killed with her children uh, by her husbands. We know that. So what is going to compel someone to, to read further? And that really dictated a lot of my, a lot of how I approached this book, because that is what's at stake. What's at stake is that we are losing four women a day in this country to domestic violence homicide four women a day I mean it's you know it's unbelievable and every then, minute people are beat up in this country every minute 20 people are assaulted by people they love and then and then while you were in the middle of your book tour your own personal social circle was rocked by exactly this type of story um, can you tell us a little bit about what happened when you were on book tour talking about a book about domestic violence it it's it's a savage irony is the only way i can put it and i you know i'm somewhat limited because it's still ongoing but mm -hmm. june 7th i got off a plane i had done an event in ohio the night before and i got off a flight and um my daughter's closest close friends parents um ha he had killed the mother and then killed himself and his sister, 
So the father's sister has been a dear friend of mine for 20 years. So I had multiple overlaps with this family. My daughter was a friend of theirs. And then the sister was a really good friend of mine. And I, um, I mean, it, it knocked me sideways. I, it's not like I don't expect domestic violence homicide to happen everywhere. Of course, I know as a researcher that it happens everywhere, that it runs across, uh, you know, um, demographic lines and socioeconomic lines and racial and cultural lines. I, I know all that, but, um, but I just, I guess I'm like everybody. I feel like even I would be able to see something or know something and, I didn't. I knew that they were going through a really, really toxic divorce. Um, I don't think that's unusual. Many people go through many toxic through toxic divorces. I went through one myself. So, um, but the the drastic measures taken have really shaken our whole community. And um, I <laughs> I still I still am searching for words for the way to the way to write about it and, and think about it and make sense of it, I guess. And, mm -hmm. and, and what is the takeaway? And the fact that, um, that you didn't see it coming and possibly people around even closer may not have seen that coming. Is that a, um, a disturbing hallmark of many cases of domestic violence? I mean, it is and it isn't. You know, in fact, most domestic violence homicides have um, a certain set of risk factors that are common. And those okay. risk factors tend to be on, not tend to be, they are on the Danger Assessment website. It's called dangerassessment.org. Anybody can look it up. There are 20 high risk indicators for domestic violence homicide. And they're, and they're things like, um, you know, are there biological children in the home that don't belong to the abusing partner? Um, is there ownership or access of a gun? Is there um, substance abuse? Is there economic instability? Is there strangulation, which is a different category of violence than or dangerousness than like a punch? So all of these risk factors, um, really only like two of them were, were in the situation with my friends. I think had there been more, had there been, I mean, there was, had there been any kind of physical abuse or had, had there, I didn't, you know, I didn't know the couple super well. I knew them to drop off my children at play dates. I had drinks a couple of times with the mom, but it was really his sister who I'm really, really close to. And then the two daughters. So I wasn't close enough to the actual couple who are dead now to, to know, to be able to do it sort of post-mortem danger assessment on them. Someday I would like to. I think it's a little too early still at this point. But in most cases of domestic violence homicide, you can look back and see 17 or 18 of those risk factors apparent there. In your book uh, and the research you did for your book, the stories you explored, did you get a chance to talk to a perpetrator and try to get inside their mind? Sure, many. Yeah, the the entire second section of the book mm -hmm. is devoted to that perspective because I feel like, um, you know, when we pay attention to domestic violence at all, those of us who are in the media, we always tell things from a victim's perspective, which is the primary and most important perspective. But it also means that we're not um, expanding our our research and we're not trying to figure out the ways in which we can address the violence at its origin. So I sat in on uh, batterers intervention groups or offender intervention groups, if you, if you will, all over the country. And, you know, there were things that were common. Um, you know, they tended to be narcissistic. They tended to um, rationalize their own behavior. They tended to, to minimize their, the violent incidents that they were involved in. All of those things were true, but, they also were just everyday guys. Like these are guys I would have had a beer with. It was deeply unsettling to see that because I always felt as an, as an educated woman, oh, I'd be able to, I'd be able to pick out an abuser. So I wouldn't date that person or I'd have some, you know, antenna that comes up. And I, I learned that that really wasn't true. Anybody could end up in the situation of either being an abuser or being a victim and at did, any point. Did the men that were abusers see themselves as abusers? No, no, right. very rarely. I mean, it, it depended on the program, 
um, there were certain programs that made them sort of own their violence or own their proclivity toward violence, but that didn't come immediately, that that sense of self-awareness that came maybe months into a program. And um, for, some of, for some of the men, you know, pretty much all the Bauer intervention groups I sat in with were with men who are court ordered to be there. So they're court ordered to be there. Many of them are on GPS. Many of them have just been released from jail for various, you know, domestic violence offenses. And they're still not calling themselves violent. They're still not seeing that. Or if they see it in their cell in themselves and they have come from a home where there was violence, which is true of many, many of them, they didn't see their fathers as violent. Instead, they empathized with their fathers and they talked about their mothers provoking that violence. So, um, you know, there's, there's really a disconnect between people's behavior and how people see themselves in the world. Mm. I, I'm just thinking of as a mother of two boys, thinking about how um, boys internalize the social cues that they see around them as they grow up. Um, and I suppose this is the sort of thing that um, people, you know, are, are ref refer to these days as toxic masculinity in our culture. Uh, and of course, this, this is a, a cultural phenomenon, right? Mm -hmm. it, it, it is. I mean, it certainly spans multiple cultures. It's not, it's, you know, certainly right. not just American, but I do think that, um, you know, for me, it's language is so important as a, as a writer. Um, and, you know, I've had many people say, like, there's nothing wrong with masculinity, which is absolutely true. Like, masculinity is, is necessary, right? It's, it's adding that adjective, that word toxic, onto it that makes it so dangerous. And so I do think when, when we have, it's very difficult. I mean, I empathize with you as a mother. I'm raising a girl and I have a sort of different set of problems, but, you know, how do we say to our children, yeah, these are our leaders, but you don't want to emulate them, you know, or yes, these are our leaders, but that's, that's not really the way we should talk in public. Right. Um, I, I don't, I don't know the answer to that other than that. I would like to not limit boys as we raise them, right. Their emotional constellation, their pain, their, um, their sense of self, their emotional intelligence, all of these things need to be cultivated in boys as they have been in girls for decades. So um, after writing this book, or even really, I should say, um, as part of your book, what are the recommendations that you put forward to tackle this issue, at least on a legal, uh, within a legal framework, or, or, you know, just in seeing how our laws, which are there, ought to be applied better or maybe changed? I mean, we have, we, we have the task of changing our culture, but what about the basic task of even changing our system? that that is a complicated question and i feel like i'd like to i'd like to give um a complicated answer to it i guess the first is that i don't think laws change until society changes i think that change comes from society demanding those changes and then policy follows so if you look at the suffrage or you look at the civil rights movement or you look at the union movement all of those laws came about because society demanded it so i don't think you can divorce um the need for culture and cultural and social change from the the advent of policy change so the first Good thing point. i would do is yeah the first thing i would do is um to, to say to people, we need to normalize these conversations within our own homes. Like in the, in the same way that during the Brett Kavanaugh hearings, millions of women around this country were calling their husbands, their fathers, their brothers, their male friends and telling them, oh, this happened to me when I was 13 or this happened to me when I was 15. These kinds of conversations need to happen around domestic violence. The other thing I would say is, is not policy oriented necessarily, but is program oriented that I think we cannot arrest our way out of this. We have huge problems in this country with mass incarceration, of course, and with you know the racism inherent with mass incar incarceration. And you cannot add domestic violence into that and say, we need to arrest and, and imprison our way out of it because people don't come out of prison as less peaceful, as mm -hmm. less violent. So I would look at some of the programs that are operating in other countries 
that we currently don't have here that offer different kinds of behaviors and skill sets, skill sets and knowledge to abusers. So for example, there's a program I heard about in another, in another country that I'm, I'm hoping to look into a little bit more that is for um, men, specifically men at the moment convicted of um, misdemeanor domestic violence, uh, sort of low level violence. And rather than sending them to jail, they send them for four months, I think a minimum of four months, to a kind of halfway house where they go off to their job during the day so they're still able to maintain that economic security for themselves. And then at night, they have group counseling and individual counseling and therapy. And they also learn things like housework and childcare and um, schedule management and all those kind of hidden tasks that women take on mm. over and over and over again that men don't see. Right. Wow. And to me, that is really effective. There's other there's also like batterers groups that have um, sitting adjacent to them parenting groups. I think those kinds of things are particularly effective. Um, and neither one of those solutions, if you will, involve policy changes necessarily. But they're things that we as communities can do can do right now. Do you, I can answer a little more about the policy if you want me to. <laughs> Uh, sure. I mean, you know, do, uh, because one of the things that I was reading about was how um, often to prosecute um, abusers, victims are expected to be part of the process and are expected to cooperate. Um, and, and, and it hinges on their cooperation and that can hamper investigations. Yeah, there's two, there's two other, there's sort of two problems with our policy currently mm -hmm. as, I, as I would see it. One is that yes, too often they require victim cooperation which, which is controversial because our constitution says you, know, you should be able to face your accuser. The problem is that that we didn't have the knowledge and the nuance um, when the Constitution was written that we have now. And so we know that putting a victim in a room with an abuser and forcing her to testify in front of him um, further traumatizes her and also puts her, puts her in a much dangerous situation because she's going to have to continue to negotiate with that abuser once he's out of prison or once he's out of whatever it is that, that he is um, you know, forced to as recompense, especially if they have children together. And so there should be more evidence-based prosecution with domestic violence cases. Police need to be trained to look for other types of evidence other than just the proverbial bruise, right? All kinds of trainings and programs that I talk about in the book for that. The other issue is that a lot of judges um, uh, equate anger management with batterers intervention. And people ask me, like, who would you like, who, do, who did you write this book for? Or who would you like to read this book? And of course, my answer has been everyone, everyone. <laughs> but also specifically judges. Because when they sentence somebody like Ray Rice to anger management, what they're really saying is, I have no idea about the difference as a crime um, between domestic violence and other types of, of violence. And that that means that they are they are missing all the important factors of that crime. You know, only about 25% of abusers fit that rageaholic that we that we envision. The other 75%, it's about power and control. They're enraged, um, and they're trying to control one specific person. They know how to act at their job. They're not raging against their coworkers or their their you know kids, teachers, or whatever. It's it's one person. And so anger management is not something that should be conflated with batterers intervention. Right. Finally, um, Rachel, I'm wondering, uh, since we've been talking a lot about language in, in this uh, conversation, and, and it's so important to you, as you were saying, uh, we started out talking about how the term domestic violence is just uh, you know, an inadequate term. What would you like to see, or have you, have you thought about a better term to describe this kind of violence. I thought about that for a decade. <laughs> you know, the search I, let me goes tell on. You, my, my profound failing as a writer and journalist is that I have I have failed so far to come up with a better term. I mean, I do think that it, a lot of researchers have been calling it intimate partner terrorism for a lot of years. I think that I don't like the word partner in there because it implies just one type of relationship. Um, but I do think intimate terrorism is a much better term. You know 
back to the Michelle Mosier story in, in Montana, who I opened my book with, who was killed when she was 23. One of the things that her husband would do, there were two things that were particularly chilling to me. One is he would take the kids when he was mad at her and he would go to a motel for the night or go camping and she'd be sick with worry, not knowing what was happening, where they were. And so he, he coerced her into like compliance and, obe compliance and obedience by taking the kids, which is not uncommon. And the other thing he did, which is equally chilling, is he went out to the outskirts of the city where they lived, got a rattlesnake and brought it home and kept it in a cage and told her, I'm gonna put this in bed with you mm. if you don't if you don't do what I say. Those two things don't involve any kind of physical violence at all. And yet, what do you call that? You don't call that domestic violence. I mean, that is a form of terrorism. There's a reason that researchers today are looking at the neurological makeup of domestic violence victims and comparing them to prisoners of war. It's intimate terrorism. Wow. I want to thank you so much for joining us today, Rachel, uh, and for sharing uh, your time with us and for writing this very important book. Really appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. Please, Mr. Redman, don't put me out in the street. Community Alliance of Tenants is working to increase awareness in Washington County of the statewide law SB 608 that was passed in early 2019. It limits rent increases and no-cause terminations for residential leases. There is a temporary bilingual English and Spanish hotline set up for Washington County renters with questions about SB 608, rent increases, no-cause termination notices, and or lease non-renewal notices. Phone number is 503-644-3007. Again, that's the Renner's Right hotline phone number for Washington County every Thursday from 6 to 8 p.m. through January 30th at 503-644-3007. More information can be found at kboo.fm on the right side of the homepage under Community Events. I'm right in the middle of solving that riddle known as raising the rent. KBOO Community Radio is working with Beautiful Portland to collect socks and blankets for those who are sleeping outside this winter. There is a collection box in the lobby of KBOO Radio, 20 Southeast 8th Avenue in Portland between Burnside and Ankeny. Donations are accepted Monday through Friday, 9 a.m. to 5 p.m. It's 10 a.m. or 10.01 a.m. at KBOO Portland. And coming up next is Sprout.